This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You make a deal with Netflix and you don't have money that comes into you forever. You get paid and then money 20% more or 30% more, but you that's it. It didn't come natural to me. There's so many things that I think about now, I wish I had known when I was younger. What I believe resonates with people who are particularly now is content that has some sort of meaning to it. It's more than just pure entertainment. And so suddenly MTV was the only thing, it seemed, in the whole world and all of Hollywood and everybody else was taking their cues from this startup. I did not know a single writer when I became a writer. I think if you're trying to become a writer from someplace other than Los Angeles and New York, I still think that's really difficult. Welcome to the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast with your hosts, Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Kaya Alexander, the host of the Entertainment Business Wisdom Podcast. I am the founder of the Entertainment Business School, and I was mentored by Gary Shandling. I'm also a HarperCollins novelist. I I like to joke in this industry, my business card should say everything but acting, because I'm also now producing. So um, I'm so excited to welcome my special guest today. When I say her name, everybody I have said her name to says, oh, I love her. So her middle name is now I love her. Jen, I love her. Grisanti <laughs> is with us today. And let me tell you a little bit about her as we dive into the interview with her on our on our call today. Um, <clears throat> her story begins the way that yours might, by working with someone who truly believed in her. She was mentored by Erin Spelling, who is one of the most extraordinary executives and prolific producers in the business. She learned early on how to develop a story and make a script the best it can be before it hit the air. She worked with the exec producers, showrunners, and staff of over 15 primetime shows. She had the unique opportunity to give script notes daily and see them implemented weekly on shows like 90210, Melrose Place, Charmed, Medium, Numbers, NCIS, The 4400, and Girlfriends. As a three-year mentor in the CBS Diversity Program and panelist for the WGA and DGA, she helps other creative talents see the business through the eyes of an executive. And now she has launched Jen Grisanti Consultancy to give back what Erin Spelling and many other top names in the business gave to her because she loves to give that attention that will help others achieve their dreams. Welcome, Jen Grisanti. Yay. Oh, thank you so much, Kaya. I so appreciate it. It's so great to see everyone. I'm so excited. 
Yes, we're filming today's call in front of a live audience. So we do have those in the audience who gave her a round of applause. So <laughs> it's always wonderful. I'm so excited to talk to you. You're on the island of Maui today, which is so awesome. And the aloha spirit bringing us all that creative aloha uh, spirit today. Let's talk about your career for a minute. What? Um, tell me what you're the most proud of, of everything you've done. Uh, you know, I think what excites me the most to get out of bed is the idea of knowing how you can help a writer go from non-working to working or from working to getting to the next level of their career. So when I look at, um, how my training ground was the 12 and a half years as an executive, then 13 years for Writers on the Verge as the writing instructor at the same time as starting my business 13 years ago. It is all about the transformation. So I would say for me, that is what uh, thrills me. That is what when I can celebrate a writer making a breakthrough, I get excited. That, that's what makes me love what I do from the beginning. I mean, even as a studio executive, you know, the thrill of staffing a writer was great because you knew that somebody was starting their path and, and there's nothing better than, than seeing that happen. Oh, that's amazing. You might, you've seen so many breakthroughs over the years. Is there any common themes uh, when you see that breakthrough happen for someone who is new to the business or um, accelerating their career? Yeah, I, yes, I would say that the, one of the biggest things that I talk about a lot is belief. So when I see a writer go from being a great writer but not having the belief that the talent is there and you do the work with them. And when the belief and the confidence come through, then doors start opening. So, so I find that belief mixed with um, the ability to dive deep into the emotional well of their own story to be able to add fiction to that, that is another huge thing that opens doors. Like when I was an executive and I would be in meetings and I would meet 300 writers a season for staffing season. And I would ask them questions like what happened? Why do you write? You know, be always be prepared to answer that question. Why do you write? So, so I would answer questions like, why do you write? What happened earlier in life that made you feel like you had something to say? And I would get people that would have all kinds of looks because of course we all know you don't want to write from an autobiographical place, but you do want to write from a place of truth. And so understanding your own emotional truth and doing the emotional truth in your life is what leads to belief and confidence that is a huge part of why doors open when they do. That is so fascinating. I haven't heard anybody else talk about 
the, um, you know, we hear phrases like writing close to the bone um, or, you know, doing the deeper dive, but you're the first person I've met in this industry who's really talking about the, the personal journey of the writer and how that appears on on the page and then on screen. Um, would you talk to us about one of the shows that is top of mind for you where you feel like that's been done really well? Yeah, I, I well, with story therapy, which I know we'll talk about in a bit, but I would say like that show, uh, Mayor of Easttown and Flight Attendant, when I look at both those shows, as far as the transformation in the simplicity of when we enter the story, you know, in Maravie's town, she's stuck. We know that she hasn't solved the Katie Bailey case. We don't know why. Uh, we know that uh, she has a grandson, Drew, who she has custody of. We don't know why. So part of building questions, building anticipation, as far as the transformation and then with Mare, we learn that she's stuck and she's stuck because she has, hasn't processed uh, a trigger that happened before we entered the story, which was the suicide of her son. Uh, so the season one arc is beautifully structured in that through the relationship dynamics, we get to see how Mare goes from being stuck to being unstuck through the revelation of what happened in her backstory. And I don't want to give too much away if people haven't seen it, but but like through the what happened in her childhood wound as it links to the series trigger and dilemma, as it links to why she's stuck, as it links to why she wants what she wants in the pilot, we see the transformation. So the biggest reason why I work with so many writers on understanding that own transformation in your life is that it, it allows you to understand how to write it in fiction. Let's talk about that reverberation of the early wound and how it starts to affect character decisions by the time we meet them in the story. So always all of story is certainly the ones that are written at a very, very high level. Uh, when we enter the story. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to do's, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. The central character is stuck. Uh, so we don't know right away. There are different ways that this is revealed. Um, the biggest way that I'm noticing is story is continuously evolving is I'm noticing that the shows that are excelling are starting with the flaw. So flight attendant, for example, we're starting with the flaw uh, 
in a monumental way. We see the flaw in the montage and the world from the beginning. We see the promiscuity. We see the drinking. We see the flakiness and the non-committal. We see the denial. And, and like when I take a show like that, what's fascinating to me is in the script, that show did deal with the reveal of the childhood wound early on. But in what we saw in the film, they waited for the childhood wound until the climax all is lost moment. And the reason I think they made this choice, which I think was an excellent choice, was because the flaw and the revelation of the flaw was doing its work because the flaw is the story of the wound. So when you do the flaw and show the flaw correctly, then you create anticipation and we want to know more about what is the wound. The flaw is the story of the wound. That's so interesting. I think um, Gary Shandling would have loved that because even if you look at his character, Larry Sanders, the commitment phobia, right, mm -hmm. of all his characters was always coming from a mother wound place of having been smothered by the mother of like, oh, I can't, you know, deal with it. I can't get involved. And you see that echo through his characters. And it's so interesting. I feel like as I've been learning from you, it's almost like putting goggles on that. Like now I'm watching shows through a totally different lens <laughs> where I'm like, oh, but this is, this is the earlier wound and it's showing up here through the flaw. I was thinking about one of my favorite shows from last year. You mentioned Mayor of Easttown. I really loved Halston. I don't know if you saw it, but the Ewan McGregor, oh my God. Oh my God. It was incredible. If you guys who are listening, haven't seen it, you must, oh, you good. must, you must. I will. You know? No, I will watch that. That's been on my list and I have not watched it. So, okay. all right. It, and, and what you'll see is like the beauty of the way that they let the reverberations of his past echo through his present. I don't generally love flashbacks, but like also Queen's Gambit did this so well, where the mm -hmm. flashbacks really gave us such a picture of yeah. The youth. They did it really well with Halston too, where the flashbacks, where he started making hats for his mom. That was where he started his fashion career. And you see why his mom was depressed. Mm -hmm. He's going to cheer her up by making hats. And then how that goes through his whole life and where that came from with his early childhood. I won't say more than that, because you go back to his early childhood in those moments. And a lot of them aren't even with dialogue. You know, talk about show, don't tell. There, there is no dialogue in most of those flashbacks, but you get this visceral feeling. Um, and Jen and I were talking um, yesterday on the phone, and I was even saying when I was a development exec with Inferno, which is now called Lotus, oh man, you read like 50 scripts a week. And you're just dying for the script that makes you feel something, you know, the scripts that made me cry. Oh man, you know, I always teed up meetings with those teams. Oh, the script made me cry. I don't care if the attachments aren't as strong as others because that blueprint of the feeling is what is what we all want. We all want that from our shows too. We do because what you feel stays with you. I mean, what we have to all recognize when we're talking about the idea of feeling is right now it's more important than ever because we are all in this massive wound with the pandemic and how we're all stuck and how we are going to move 
forward beyond this and story and the transformation and the invigoration of how does one go from being stuck to being unstuck and through healing the past and making us feel then we get empowered to know how we do this in our own lives and it's everything it was interesting to me that you said that you see a, an echo effect between the writers who are doing this deeper work with their own lives. Can you say more about that? Because that was fascinating. Yeah. Uh, say, for example, Ted Lasso. So we take Ted Lasso. And I remember reading an article um, a while back that talked about his marriage and not his marriage, his engagement. So he was engaged to Olivia Wilde, who left him for Harry Styles, right before- We're talking about Sudeikis? Ted Lasso. Huh? We're talking about Sudeikis. Yes. Okay. Yes, Jason Sudeikis and Ted Lasso. Yes. So Jason Sudeikis was engaged to Olivia Wilde. She left him, I guess, for Harry Styles. Yet she encouraged him to do Ted Lasso. And when you take the wound, which is- um, an incredible thing. You take a very positive character trait and that's his, his overjoy, his energy. And you make that a flaw because in his own relationship, apparently with Olivia Wilde, that was perceived, his optimism was a problem in the relationship. So he drew from that emotional truth and created Ted Lasso. And apparently she encouraged him to do the show. He did. And how wonderful for all of us that he did. Because honestly, in my opinion, I think the first season of Ted Lasso is probably one of the best comedies ever done. Oh, so, isn't that amazing? I'm surprised yeah. no one today is wearing um, the jer the Richmond jersey. I yeah. usually people on my calls wearing the Richmond jersey. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Amazing. That's great. You know, the, the, and the echoes that it's created around the world. I mean, I've talked to my friends in England who love it as much as my American friends love it. You know, it's very four quadrant. I watch it with my son, you know, who's 10, yep. uh, which is just, it was just, that oh, is, I love that. I know it's not great. Yeah. It's so um it's so powerful. We talk about the the characters and when the characters really stay with you like that, it's really meaningful. It's very meaningful and it moves you to tears. So like what I often tell people is when you have those moments where story moves you to tears, write down those moments and then go backward and understand why am I tearing up in this moment? And Ted Lasso has so many moments where you tear up in season one and, 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 and going backward and looking at why am I feeling for this character in such a massive way and looking at his optimism and his self-deprecation and his um, naivete and his joy and his bliss and his well-meaning. And, and there's just so much to learn in contrast with Rebecca who came comes in with an evil agenda, but who is also affected by Ted Lasso and his optimism. And it 
is a part of her transformation as a character. Transforming the boss lady. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So great. I was just reflecting, uh, you know, I have so many students, it's hundreds now, and I've only been at this for a little while. And we, thank you. As I talk to them, it seems like there's such a common theme of people who come to the entertainment business for whom movies were their safe place or like the movie theater was their church. It was the safe place they could go, you know, even uh, as a kid or as a teen. And then also that sometimes in many cases, students for whom they had nothing in common with one of their parents or even with the wounding parent, except for movies, TV, films. So there's nothing in common, except they could sit down and watch this show together. Or, you know, in my case with my dad, we could always talk about movies and he had such difficult mood swings, but we could always talk, I could always change his mood by talking about a film, by talking yeah. about a beloved film of his. And from an early age, that was like, you know, my, that was my shield was like, I know I can change dad's mood by talking about this movie. Dad, let's go see this movie. And, you know, those kinds of like deep uh, childhood wounds that we bring with us to the industry that then we create content from, I think is really what makes people feel. It brings our audiences to, to their knees in a show like Fleabag, for example, where everyone I know has seen it just goes, I am Fleabag. I'm yes. Fleabag, you know, that sexual promiscuity or that kind of of, you know, pain of the loss of a dear beloved best friend or even sibling, you know, that then you have to go forward in a crippled way uh, through life. And then we just go, oh, I, I love her so much. You know, her wound is my wound. And then you end up not just with audience, but you end up with fans. And then for you guys who are creators, I want you to really hear that because you can get a show sold you can get season one out there, but if you don't move your audience and really speak from your own deep wound um, and tap into that emotion, like what Jen was saying with Ted Lasso, you won't end up with fans. You want fans because fans are going to propel the show to all the seasons and, you know, and ultimately to the reach that it has. I'm thinking about Yellowstone, too, where those characters are so flawed and, and it has the bit one of the biggest season finales in network history in a really long time where everybody just goes, oh, I love these characters and they feel so connected to them. And they are so flawed. And they're in, all in such a beautiful way. Yes. The flawed family dynamic. We're all like, oh my God, you know, so many of us know that. Um, where there's, you know, who's the anchor, who's the positive one, who's gonna keep us uplifted, where everything else is is going to hell in a handbasket, you know? <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> So I'd love to hear hear more about the work that you're doing now. Tell me about your own evolution and what you're doing now. So um, story therapy is what, uh, what I'm working on right now is my angle of story. And it probably will remain my angle for the next couple of years with the digital products that I do because I am so fascinated uh, with how story is evolving and how we're going deeper and how we're feeling story and and what why we're feeling story so Our story so. is evolving i want you to just pause there before you go any further because you've had so many decades in this business how do you see story has evolved well certainly i mean i started working on 90210 when the original when it was in year 2 so when you take something like an issue oriented fam familial show coming of age 
type. And then I did Seventh Heaven and Charmed and all this. And then I moved to CBS Paramount and I did Medium and Numbers and NCIS and Girlfriends and the 4400. And even in that spurt, you see how it's evolving. And like when I look at Yellowstone versus um, Dynasty in the past, and when you see how much deeper it goes. And then when I, right now we're watching uh, the tunnel, which the original, which uh, America did its version of, I believe the bridge is, is what it was, but we're watching the original version and the, the original, leak, is it Israeli or B, or BBC? What is it? It's BBC. It's BBC. Yeah. And it is mind blowing. Like the lead character of, Elise uh, is so special, as well as the dynamic between her and her colleague. And when we look at Elise's backstory, and she's a twin, and she feels like um, she's loosely on the spectrum in some way. So emoting is part of her challenge and her her um character her colleague is very flawed uh and she just asks questions like there's no editing because she just comes from a worldview that is so special and so powerful and we learn that she lost her twin character um when she was younger her father was able to save her but not her twin. And so that trauma in a procedural where you have character dynamics, like just pulls you in, you know? So interesting. I'm going to have to see the tunnel now. I haven't seen it, but I I, uh, guiltily confess, I binge watched uh, the first three episodes of Pam and Tommy Oh, I I looked at that last night for like 20 minutes. Oh my God. Yeah. And then, and then binge watching it with, uh, with your, with the goggles of, of story therapy on was extra fascinating. And we're going to have to have a conversation about that once you've seen it, because it was so fascinating. And especially Seth Rogen's character in that you guys have to see it. It's phenomenal. Well, and it's funny because you take something like that and you go like, I'm going to tell you from my worldview, I go. What is in that concept that we want to know about? So it, it is going to be very interesting for me to see creatively what they do, which oh, means so you, well done. Really? So well okay, done. good. And let me tell I, you, their intimacy coordinator was so busy. It was probably a whole department. <laughs> well, oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I can imagine. But even like with evolving, when you look at how you can do a story based on that and create a series. Um, the and IP, then the when IP you was look- an article. Pardon me? The IP was an article. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it was yeah. like, a, you know, things you never knew about this sex tape. And I haven't read the article, but it says straight up there that the IP was based on the article. And you don't see that very often. So the article must have been something. And didn't I hear that both of them weren't on board with the idea of it? That I think is is what yeah. I have also read about, which it seems yeah. like, you know, in the age of consent, it would be really nice to get yes. the consent of the yes. woman who this is about. And that was definitely a little disturbing to read. 
Um, but in terms of a piece of, of actual, you know, of content of story, of storytelling, of how the story is told, um, it's it's pretty epic. Oh, good. Yeah, I imagine it's going to be discussed discussed a lot. Um, well, I, I do want you to to tell us more about story therapy and what you're focusing on now and um, what people can learn from you. Cause you, you're such a teacher, you're an author. You guys should all look at her. She has like a number of books out. Is it three? Yes. Yep. She's got three books out that you can read on Amazon and she has this fantastic uh, story therapy six week program. And I want her to tell us about it. So every year what I do. So if people aren't familiar with my StoryWise teleseminar, I started it 13 years ago. It was the same time that I was the writing instructor for Writers on the Verge. What prompted it was the recognition that there are thousands of writers who don't get into the fellowships. And so I went to NBC and I said, you know, the curriculum was my curriculum. So I said, I would like to teach this to writers in a program. And I was fortunate that NBC was on board with that. So I've been doing this for 13 years. And every year, just like Story has evolved on network and streaming, um, my program has evolved. So this year, uh, my angle is story therapy. Every year, I look for five, uh, anywhere from four to six shows. This year I'm doing five shows in a film. Uh, and I look for shows that are excelling uh, in a way that shows us all uh, the idea of transformation that makes us feel that these are the shows that are staying with us. These are the shows that people are talking about. And, and so I'm always on the lookout for what are these shows. And so I watch everything. Uh, and this year, the shows are Hacks, Ted Lasso, Flight Attendant, Mayor of Easttown, Startup, and the film is Sound of Metal. Uh, and it is a six-week program. I put six months into the story instruction, which is eight modules that people get upon purchase so that you can move through the story instruction before we start the live online portion. And the live on, online portion this year starts on February 15th at 7 p.m., Pacific time. And in the, the live online portion, I have a level three, which Darcy is one of, I saw Darcy on here. So I have a level three. So I select five writers, uh, this year, five writers, usually four, but this year I selected five writers at level three. And it's like a fellowship in that these writers are going to be like what my writers and writers on the verge where in six weeks, they're turning something in every week. And the entire community is watching this. So I allow people to give notes, which um, they can give notes directly to level three, because to be a working writer, you not only need to know how to write, you need to know how to give notes. 
Uh, so this is a class where we go into that. And then I have for the second part of the class, I have top working writers. I'm uh, very excited about all my guest speakers this year. Uh, and they come in and they listen to five five-minute pitches. Uh, and then they give constructive feedback. Uh, and Darcy did that last year and actually hit it out of the ballpark. So it, it was uh, a very special thing. So when you see people having the courage to put it out there and knowing that from those people doing that, we as a community all learn uh, and it informs everyone. So uh, so that gives you a glimpse. That's uh, my... Yeah. Shout out to Darcy. Darcy is one of my yes. students in the entertainment business school mm -hmm. too. And I know she's really excited to be joining you at level three. That, that's so awesome. Um, yeah. I want everybody to hear that for a second. Writers on the Verge no longer exists. Um, and Jen has been able to take everything that she taught in Writers on the Verge and put it into this program for you guys. And, um, the, and it starts very, very soon, which is, which is awesome. Yes. And let me say, though, with Writers on the Verge at this point, so and I know I have a bazillion people asking me about Writers on the Verge at this point, because the program, uh, the regime where I worked with with Writers on the, on the Verge is no longer there. And there's a new regime in there. And last year there was no Writers on the Verge. And this year I have no idea what the plan is if there's going to be a new diversity writing program right. with the new regime or what their plan is but at this point they're they're the program as it was is is no longer but we hope that they will but at this point yeah we ju we just don't know yes um, we just don't know the industry is so fluid we're going to come back to talking about story therapy again in a moment because jen has a special offer for everybody on the call that's amazing and you guys should all stay tuned to listen for that um and jen with all of your experience in the industry for so long the industry has been so fluid would you talk to us about how you've seen it change you know, what's happening now that's different than what you've seen before? And where's the opportunity for new voices, especially breaking in? I think there's a massive opportunity for new voices with social media. Uh, so I always tell people, be, be so aware as a writer, you are an entrepreneur, you are controlling your destiny. So when you have social media, understanding how your posts reflect your brand Absolutely. and how what you put out there is your voice. And, and so utilizing that opportunity to draw attention, I certainly think is opening doors in ways that never have before where people, there is a recognition in the business. This is one huge way the business is evolving is you might find when you go on a writer meeting that they want a sense of your social media because it, it is all about like you are a partner in the success of a show. Yes. So having a huge social media following is a marketing tool that works well for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so many decisions are being made off of that. And you should always think, you know, as using utilizing social media, 
put your professional hat on as you do that. Contribute value, be a positive voice, uh, make sure that you're adding value to the community so people can see who you are. And even just an, as an example, um, for those comics uh, who and comedy writers who are on the call, I know of one um, comedian who was just putting up, you know, funny tidbits and sayings and jokes on her Twitter. And uh, one of the writers from a late night show saw that and got her staffed on the late oh, night show. I see that happen. Her jokes. So you yeah. can even end up getting staffed on a show from your presence on social media. So don't use it like a water cooler chat. Don't discount the power of that and continue to build your, your audience. So for professional contacts and also for your own audience. I occasionally do a like little workshop on how to utilize Twitter. And it's good for the industry professionals who are aspiring pros also, you know, to realize that the whole industry is there on Twitter and you can really reach people. I find a lot of my podcast guests there and I'm always so excited to connect with people. And, you know, it's a very small little community actually at the end of the day. It is. And it, it's, it makes, I mean, when I started in the business in 1992 as an executive, I, I, 94 was when I became an executive is you did not have that access. So now you have a access in a major way. So it's figuring out what do you do with that access? What do you do? And, and what you do is you recognize that your voice means something. And so you follow anyone you admire. I'm also a huge believer that everyone in this town needs to be stroked. So if you <laughs> tell people when you're watching something, if, if writing hits you and makes you feel, send somebody a message on, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, on Facebook. I loved what you did in this episode. What you explored in this storyline really resonated with me. This never goes away. I'm going to tell you, Aaron Spelling, who at the top of his game, you know, was one of the most prolific producers of all time. He loved when people gave him compliments. He loved when he knew he impacted people because that's what everyone is here to do. You're here to make an impact. So if someone impacts you, don't miss the opportunity to let them know. And that creates the beginning of a relationship. I so echo that a genuine compliment is so powerful. It's important to remember that when things are on screen, you know, the creators aren't getting to enjoy an, a, like a theater audience who's laughing and who, you know, if you do a stage produ production, you get that immediate audience feedback um, and, and the relationship that goes along with that with the audience. If you put something out on screen, you know, you're going to hear about it from your closest family, your closest friends. Oh, I loved your episode or any strangers on Twitter who might say something about it. But a lot of times your episode might even air in a vacuum of who saw it, who liked it. And so it becomes so meaningful to receive a genuine compliment like that. Um, Jen had that relationship, that mentor relationship with Aaron Spelling that she just spoke to. And I had that mentor relationship with Gary Shandling. And, you know, there's a lot of times where we would be out at, 
you know, dinner with people who's a very recognizable celebrity and people would see him and come up to the table sometimes. And he was always so gracious. But let me tell you the difference between like a sycophantic person coming up and saying, oh, Gary, oh, I'm dying to get my show on the air. And it's just like your show. And let me like crash into your dinner and tell you all about my show and blah, blah, blah. And he would just like put his hand up and be like, thank you. We're not interested in talking to you. And like this almost, you know, Jedi... (laughs) go away now trick versus someone who could even same interrupt a dinner. He's super gracious. He was always really loving of his fans who would be like, Gary, your show changed my life. I saw you on television when I was a child. I don't want to interrupt you. I just want to let you know that I'm doing what I do now because of what you did. And then he would be like, hang on a minute, Kaya. And he would like turn, he'd stand up, he'd shake the person's hand. He'd be like, tell me what you're doing now. You know, sometimes even, is there anything I can do to help you? You know, like in in that level of engagement of the genuine compliment of someone who's sensitive in that way and how much it meant. Um, Yeah, he would also, you know, do the same thing with police people who would stop him. Who would be like, hey, you know, you're speeding. They'd be like, oh, it's Gary Shandling. Oh, I love your show. And he'd be like, how much do you love my show? You know, like, and he would joke with them. Like, how can I get out of this speeding ticket if we talk about my show? I love he'd get, that. He'd get out of the car to talk to the police, the policeman who pulled him over and be like, yeah, let's talk about the show. Oh, what are you doing now? Da, da, da. So, you know, how's your day going? How many people have you pulled over? And he would just shoot the breeze with them. Just I crying. love that. He would never miss an opportunity to play with people. He was very, yes. so when you come at it, and in fact, I think that's a key there. When you come at your profession from a playful place, people love it. It's the entertainment business. There's a lot of gloss versus the mindset or frame of like desperation. I've got to do this thing. This is my dream. Oh, it's going to happen. And then people are just really off put. Of course, we can all feel it. So when you come at it from a place of like playfulness and openness, it's a collaborative industry. 50% of your job is making friends. So how well do you make friends? How can you polish up your friend making? skills. And, you know, I will just flat out tell people, by the way, in case you need a tip about that, when I meet someone who's rad and I connect with them, another fellow writer, producer or something, I'm like, I'm going to be your friend. I want you to be my new friend. We're friends now. And I'll like, you know, claim them. And like in every one of us, there's an eight-year-old on the playground who is afraid that they don't fit in with the, with the group. And it's like, you reach somebody like, you want to be my friend. And it's like, so meaningful. And then from there, you can really build a relationship and maybe you end up working together, maybe not, but you might find out in six months of that friendship. Oh my gosh, we both love lost in space. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, they're staffing the next season. Oh, you know, the producer is doing it. Oh my God. And then like it converges into what the I'll use Jen's word here destiny there's a destiny convergence point that happens that you might not even see when you're just at the beginning of you know you and I connected let's be friends and you can all do that everybody listening you should all do that even if you're not in the entertainment business the world you know people make the world go around and no one it, it never gets old as far as people understanding that they made you feel something that will never. And in this day and age where there are 200 different choices to watch 
it the idea of putting something up on Twitter like, oh, my God, did you see last night's episode of this show? And wow, this moment, like everyone loves that. So so never miss the opportunity to do that. Oh, it is so, it is so true. It's all about community and it's all about being with people who share your passion and having a goal that you're doing together. You know, and I teach this theory as well. It's really my core philosophy of the entertainment business school. I call it finding your wolf pack. When you find your wolf pack in this industry, you have to remember lone wolves starve. If you are lone wolfing for in this industry, I guarantee you, you're not working. You're not getting paid for your scripts. It's not happening for you. But when you realize, oh, I could find a wolf pack. Maybe there are other writers in my wolf pack, like within Jen's group. There's maybe producers in my wolf pack. My rep is in my wolf pack. Maybe even a spouse or an entertainment attorney is in your wolf pack. And what I hear Jen talking about in that Facebook group is she creates a wolf pack amongst the people who take her course because uh, it's that meaningful. They get that bonded. Yes. It, it, it is. It absolutely is. I also noticed somebody else on here, Amy. I don't see her now, but Amy is another person who has been a part of it, who I want to congratulate because she's like all over the place with Amy, with your short. I'm so proud of you and everything that's happening with that. So I wanted to give you a shout out too. It's so amazing when when the whole reason Kaya and I do stuff like this, like it, the idea to celebrate your success and get your name further out there. So every time when Amy or Darcy end up, uh, or any of the writers that I work with, end up being a semifinalist or above, they let me know. And then I put a post up celebrating them because I have a lot of people in the entertainment community on my Facebook, on my Twitter, on my LinkedIn, and it's a way to get the name out there. And it's a way to celebrate success. Uh, so, so proud of you guys. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've been running this a, a couple of years in a row, right? 13 years oh, it's I've been, been doing it. Merely yes. 13 years. Um, yes. So you've really developed and evolved. This technique has come out of that. Yes. And I've had 97 pilots sold um, from writers that I've worked with over the last 13 years. And with Writers on the Verge, we've had writers that I started with 13 years ago who are now executive producers and getting overall deals and showrunners. So it's just all about putting in the work so the transformation happens. Phenomenal. So somebody who comes to you, I mean, do they have to be advanced already and like have been writing for years to take advantage of this program? Or do you take people who are more new to screenwriting? Tell me about who, who the people are who sign up. I end up with all, all over the map. So I end up with writers. I've ended up with a lot of working writers because I staffed over 15 primetime shows part of the 97 pilots that were sold are from writers that are working. So I do get um, some working writers that join the course as a way to refresh the education and go further in their career. Then I get newer writers. I get writers who have been writing for five to 10 years who are doing well in the competitions, but want 
to get to that next level as far as staffing, representation, selling their script. So it is all over the place. I am going to say the the what I teach, my curriculum is um, a little advanced. There is a terminology that I go through because I've been in the entertainment now for business for close to 30 years. So there is a um, terminology like I say series trigger and dilemma. So series trigger essentially is like your inciting incident. It's your setup of the series. So so I tend to lean toward the idea of writers who are ready to commit to the process, who have a strong sense of what is involved in the process and who are looking to move to the next level with it. I'm so excited to have met Jen and I'm already learning so much from her. Um, many of you know, I'm a HarperCollins novelist and um, my writing mentor was author Tom Robbins. And Tom was a really firm believer in the um, don't have a plan plan. <laughs> he, he, if you've read any of his books, like uh, even Cowgirls Get the Blues, which Gus Van Zandt turned into a movie, Tom never outlined. He never liked to see the end coming from the beginning. He felt like that was the surefire way to bore your reader to tears. So he would just always start writing longhand in pen on a yellow legal pad, the first thing being the title. And then line by line, he would write longhand in pen and flip a page and, and all his books are written that way. So ultimately when he would finish a book, he had, you know, 40 yellow legal pads written longhand in pen that he would then send to be typed up to turn into his book. Um, and so I started writing my first book longhand in pen without any idea where the book was going. And it took a couple of years and, you know, ultimately taught me so much about the writing process. And now ultimately, of course, I also outline, <laughs> it's like, you kind of want to know where that story is going. Cause boy, if you've written a novel longhand in pen and you got to un unwind one of those threads, it's crazy. There was a funny panel between him and John Irving. Um, if you guys read Cider House Rules, or any other ones at John Irving's books. They are the polar opposites of one another. John Irving is an outliner and um, won't do anything until he knows how the story is going to go. Um, they got into a, a fun little fisticuffs verbally on, on stage about, well, how if your audience knows what's coming, you know? So there's a lot of different ways to write. There's a lot of different ways to tell stories. And, um, and ultimately now I'm kind of a hybrid where I'll do a vomit draft just to play, to play in that world, to play with those characters. Who are they? Who are their voices? What do I discover? And then I set aside a complete vomit draft and then I outline and go, oh, okay, now I know at least a little bit about who these people are, what their world is. And I start over and do a full outline. And then from there, I go back and, and go into the first draft. So, you know, I, I think the really cool thing about what Jen teaches is when you do this deeper work of looking at, you know, what is the wound that has motivated the actions of the characters? And then ultimately, how does that play out for them? Where are they coming from? There's no wrong answer for that. But if you know, you know, the audience may not even really realize what's happening, but they get taken into something that feels so real, that they feel connected to, that they look at that character and go, oh my God, that's me. 
that's my sister, that's my dad. And that resonance, because the human experience, like we're all human beings having this human experience, how do you utilize the tools, like the tools Jen teaches to develop your stories through the characters? Uh, the execs, of course, as you guys hear, as you get in front of execs, I always want character-driven everything. Give me a character-driven story. And you know, what does that mean versus plot-driven? Where, you know, in the in the 80s and the 90s, and we had more plot-driven stories and storytelling. Now we're looking at, you know, really how character drives story, going all the way back to Plato, who said, um, your character is your fate. Isn't that interesting? Your character is your fate fate that that's how deep it goes all the way back to the some of the original thinkers so often you know sitting from from that place of you know watching things and and commenting and observing on it now I notice my son is doing that too Jen are you able to watch a show without the meta level of like everything you know about storytelling can you just watch something and enjoy it and then go back and re-watch it or do you feel that that meta level of seeing things the way that you um understand them is always there my hope is always that it I get lost and it sweeps me away yeah. so I'm not doing that so my hope always when I watch um series and films uh is that I will get swept away and not be going but it's often when I do get swept away and everything feels like it's working that that's what makes me go back and look at it and break it down because I'm like, all right, this is working at a high level. So I am able to do that if the writing is working. Uh, I am able to do that. That's like the best feeling. I feel like yeah. it's really rare. Um, if I can turn off that part of my brain that's analyzing the story and like just get swept away uh, at such a visceral level. Yellowstone has done that for me recently where it's such a, it's like a, you know, armchair clencher. Yes. Oh God. Um, yes. <laughs> and, and that kind of writing is really fun where you forget, you know, to analyze it. And then it's like, I'll make notes and go, oh, I got to go back and rewatch that episode. Yes. So that I actually know why. So that you see why it's, it's working. And yeah, there's a note for folks on the call too. like, be sure to analyze why you love what you love, because mm -hmm. we have a lot of writers on the call today, a lot of above the line creatives who listen to my podcast. Why do you love what you love? And how is that part of your core brand? How others recognize your storytelling? Um, and how can you integrate that even more, maybe even deliberately, so that the themes that you connect to are also really rippling through your own storytelling, and you start to be known for that, and your voice really gets air apparent. Um, Jen, you, you've been such a fabulous guest. I want to thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Entertainment Business Wisdom. We invite you to subscribe, like, review, and share it with your friends and colleagues. Kaya Alexander and Sylvia Franklin can be found on Twitter for your questions and comments. Kaya at thisiskaya, T-H-I-S-I-S-K-A-I-A. And Sylvia at rwriter, that's R-W-R-I-T-E-U-R. Get career training and a free ebook, How to Pitch Anything in One Minute, at www.
entertainmentbusinessleague.com. Thank you.